Hi. We are going to finish out the book of Jonah today as we wrap up our chapel time together. Uh, as you guys are turning there, I want to just thank you for such a really sweet weekend um, of uh, loving on my kids that were up here. Um, you might have seen my sister-in-law came up and helped me with the kids and um, so I'm very grateful to her as well, but you guys were, you hung out with them and you've been so cool with me even in chapels and through discussions and asking questions around camp. So I just really appreciate that. Jonah chapter four, as we wrap up our time together. The, I mean, when you watch the skit, the drama, the whatever you call it, this masterpiece that we saw in front of us, uh, it, it ends pretty abruptly. And actually the story of Jonah isn't much different. It's kind of one of those stories that you, if you were watching a movie, you'd be like, is there a sequel to this thing? Like, when's the next one coming out? It, it, it kind of leaves you in the middle of the story. But I think it paints a good picture uh, for kind of a going away message for our weekend. It says this, chapter four. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. What's the this? Go back to chapter three. Remember, when, they, when the Bible was first written, they didn't put numbers in. Like the one, two, three, four. This was just one big letter. Okay, the Masoretes later on come in and they, they delineate things so we can know where to turn in our Bibles. Like in Jesus' day and age, they'd be like, turn, open the scroll of Isaiah and find the words that say this. And then they have to go through the whole scroll and find it. So this is one letter. It's not supposed to be broken up and you're supposed to read it kind of to its completion. So when it says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. We go back to chapter three, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So Jonah, again, because of his hatred for the Ninevites and because of his passion for justice and because of his self-piety, Jonah thinking that he's all great, sinless, prophet of God. And then again, what does God say? Didn't you go the wrong direction when I told you to go that way? And you think the Ninevites are disobedient, right? We do this, right? My sin, not a big deal. Your sin, massive, right? My sin, let's, I think God will look the other way, but y'all sin, huge. And so in the middle of this passage, he thinks to himself, this seemed very wrong. He prayed to the Lord and said this, isn't this what I said, Yahweh, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to prevent or forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah, so convinced that this was the wrong move, says, I'd rather be dead than alive. This doesn't seem like justice to me. But don't you, it's so ironic what Jonah says. Jonah is the recipient of God's compassion and love, right? We talked about this last night. Jonah was born in what position? Over here. And this is what so many of us do when we, when we receive the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. We forget what we were saved from and we get in the front yard for so long, we forget that we used to be in the backyard. We're in the church of God for so long, that we begin to look across the aisle and go, look at those people that are messed up. But in God's kingdom, there isn't really this idea of those who are healthy and those who are sick, except for the way that they denote themselves, right? If you're a church person, if you're a pastor, if you're a youth pastor, we're all sick. 
We're all messed up. The church is much more like a rehab clinic than it is like a, well, like a uh, day spa. It's not for a bunch of healthy people going, I could just use a massage. I would just love some oils in my legs. No, that's not, it's all of us going, we're messed up, I'm messed up, you're messed up, we're all messed up. And when we see other messed up people that don't have Jesus, that's the only difference between them and us. We go, we're messed up, but we have Jesus who's taken away our sin and given us new life and promises us salvation. You're messed up like me, but I want you to know Jesus. All evangelism, all discipleship, all calling out to people to know Jesus starts with the person knowing I'm really messed up. But Jonah doesn't have this. He has this idea of being better than other people, and so he doesn't want God to save them. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. Don't ask me to explain to this next section. I don't get it, okay? There he made him a, himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So he's like front row popcorn. They're not gonna relent. They're not gonna repent. The Lord is gonna follow through. He's gonna end up destroying them. It's gonna be great. He wants front row seats. Then the Lord God provided a, a leafy plant, okay? And made it grow up out of it. This is what Lord, Lord provides in the story. A fish to eat him and then a plant to shade him. And then, <laughs> this is ridiculous, to Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy. It's like the lemonade. Very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. <laughs> Whale, leafy plant, worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered to death. Then the sun rose up. God provided a scorching heat and an east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew tired and faint. He wanted to die and said, it would better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry now about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. The Lord said, so he's, here's his, he's gonna explain it. You've been so concerned about this plant, but it's almost like he's asking, but did you, did you grow it? Did you have it in the first place? When you sat down and made yourself a shelter, were you expecting a plant to grow out of nowhere? And when it did grow, was it your responsibility that it grew? Did you tend it? Did you water it? Did you prune it? Did, what did you do? Did you provide the, the, uh, the photosynthesis for it to act? Did you do anything? You didn't tend it. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? So he goes, and now look at Nineveh. That's the same question. Did you make that? Did you create that? Are they yours? Did you tend it? Did you water it? What responsibility do you feel like you have? What ownership are you taking of the city of Nineveh? Those are my children. Those are my people. Should I not have concern the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from their left hand and also many animals. So the idea of right hand from left hand, they didn't have like an issue with like which one's which. But he's saying they don't even know what's right and what's wrong. And I send a prophet to tell them what's wrong and now you're mad at me? Because I, with the people that I made and created and grew and planted and tended, sent you, who I also made and knit together and grew and planted and made you for a special purpose, sent you to go do this special purpose and now you're mad at me? Why are you mad at me? And then the story ends. There's not like, a, I don't have like a pastor's Bible. Second Jonah, here we go. That's it, it's the end of the story. 
And the end of the story is supposed to give us, like all Old Testament characters are supposed to, we're supposed to finish by going, man, some parts of your life seem like you were on track with God. Other parts of your life, you were a total disaster. There's a guy in the Old Testament named David. He's called a man after God's own heart. But there's not a single church in America that would ever allow him to be brought in as a pastor or that would ever allow him to lead a church because he spends the majority of his young life after being crowned king, murdering a guy named Uriah so he can sleep with his wife. He sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, kills Uriah, and then he tries to hide the whole thing. And yet, how many of you in here are named David? Anyone here named David? My man. My man. My man. You don't even anyone here named Noah? Oh, David? David. Anyone here named Noah? Noah? Noah! If you read your story, you'll find that you got so drunk that you didn't put clothes on and your family found you naked and you brought such shame to them that everyone in the city then laughed at you. <laughs> Noah. <laughs> Anyone here named Jonah? Jonah? Your name's Jonah? Oh, jo yeah, that's not the same. Joseph? Someone here named Joseph? Joseph. Joseph! So remarkably entitled with so little EQ that you told all of your older brothers who can beat the snot out of you that you think one day they're gonna bow to you. And because of your hubris and pride, you were thrown into a pit. Your brothers tried to convince your dad that you were killed because you were his favorite and you wore your Technicolor dream coat wherever you could. You were then sold to slavery in Egypt, still had no EQ in order to work with the cupbearer. And then after time and time and time again, you finally had enough humility to become the second in all of Egypt. But your life is a disaster. It's a perfect way of showing when God's in control of things. And there's really, unless, anyone here named Josh? Okay, so you're fine, you're fine. Your name literally means Jesus, so like, you're fine, okay. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. The transliteration of the name Jesus is Yeshua, which is the name Josh. So you're fine. I don't, I have nothing to say to you. <laughs> I have nothing to say. Uh, but we're, we're like, we're disasters. We're messed up. And the story of Jonah is not supposed to be, guys, be like Jonah, right? You would never, if you loved your kids, you would never go, guys, be like David. <laughs> Just murder, a <laughs> little bit of adultery, wrongful impregnation. That's all I want for you for your life, right? No. What is David's story for? What is Jonah's story for? What is Jesse's story for? What is Joseph's story for? What is Reuben's story for? What is Noah's story for? What is Adam's story for? It's all to go without God, we are dumpster fires, we need a savior. Every story is for the same reason, it just points to Jesus. It points for our need for salvation. So if, you're, if you read the Bible and you look for all these redemptions at the end of stories, you often never find them. Moses himself leads the people out of Egypt, throws temper tantrums, pretends that he talks with God even when God's not talking to him. It, it's, kind of, it's kind of a jerk to a lot of people. And he consistently says, God, just kill them all, right? He gets, he gets in such trouble, God doesn't let him into the promised land that he was leading the people through the desert for 40 years to get to. Moses. Any Moseses? I've got a cool name. No, okay. Sounds good. But this is kind of the thing we're stuck with. 
The question I want you to walk out of here today, what we're gonna discuss for the rest of our time, I'm gonna give you three things. And these three things are simply, if you want this weekend and the, the commitments that you made to stick, one of my mentors one time told me, with great decision comes great incision. Incision means to cut something out. He says, well, almost anything in your life, when you make a big decision, you're gonna have to have great incision, okay? What are some of the biggest commitments we make as people? What's the biggest commitment you could possibly make as a person in modern day America? Marriage, good. Would you agree that with great, the great decision of marriage, there is great incision of other things? Of course, right? Like if you've got some, if you're like a guy and you've got some girlfriends you hang out with every once in a while and you guys go line dancing or whatever, or you've got this, an old girlfriend on Facebook that you keep in contact with, or maybe you've got this tradition where every night you and the guys go push shopping carts down the hill and each one gets one turn to flip into the bushes. like. With a great decision like that, there's great incision. Like, you can't talk to those girls like that anymore. You can't go hang out with them in line. I mean, okay, I, yeah, you know you can't. Like, I'm, I'm trying to make exception, but there's, like, there's, there's not a man that I would respect and respect his marriage that was like, I'd love to come hang out with you guys, but I'm gonna go line dance with my ex-girlfriend. I would go, uh, what? <laughs> Excuse me, what? Did you just say your marriage is headed for turmoil? Because that's exactly what I just heard right? There's, an, there's incision. There's things that happen. I know being married to Paige, that was one of the things that was so freeing is knowing that we had incised so many things that there's things I didn't have to worry about. I knew that if someone was trying to be friends with her on Facebook that was from her past, she would say no. Like when we went to our wedding, her ex-boyfriend wanted to come to, her, to our wedding. And I'm like, no. <laughs> like, this is my day. It's my dress. That's what I said. <laughs> and in the same way, the most powerful commitment that a, that a human being can make in the grand reality of everything, not just American culture, is to follow Jesus. It's literally, to, it's to fundamentally change your whole worldview to say, I go from me being the most important thing, the center of my own universe, to me being a part of God's bigger plan. He is king and I am not. And if you think you can do that without great incision, you're wrong. If you wanna run a marathon, great incision, yeah, you gotta probably stop eating everything that you always eat. You probably have to stop having so much binge watching on Netflix. You probably have to stop all of your lazy time and you probably need to get up a little bit earlier. There's things you have to incise and at the end of the day, it's totally worth it, even though it's hard. I know that when Paige died for me, I went, I want to see all of my kids get old. I want to do that. So I started eating healthy. I haven't eaten sugar in seven months. Not one. I don't eat sugar. No, don't clap for me. It's just, it's not like a, it's, not a, it, it's nothing else than going, I, when I get sick, I can't wake up in the morning and go, guys, shut the door, please. Just leave me alone. Let me sleep, right? My seven-year-old, and then my five-year-old, and then my four-year-old, and then my two-year-old, and then my nine-month-old can't go, okay, we got this. We got this. <laughs> when I'm, when, if I get sick, they still have to live and eat and be changed. And so I was like, oh, I, get, I gotta incise some stuff from my life. And so it is with following Jesus. And, and it's almost always the, the way that I can tell when someone's commitment or their repentance is real or it's manufactured or it's an emotional decision is I say, what about your life changed afterwards? And if all they say is, well, I mean, I just, I, just, I feel different. And I, I mean, I've got this commitment card that, that Hume Lake gave me. I go, oh no, this will be short lived. But 
if you're ready for the incision that it takes to follow Jesus, this is what Jesus says. If anyone wants to follow me, if anyone would come after me is the way he puts it, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Deny himself of what? Certain pleasures that other people are allowed to participate in. There are some things that your friends who don't follow Jesus can do, and God goes, I expect them to do that because they don't follow me, and it would be completely inappropriate for you to do them. There's even things that some of us Christians can do that other Christians can't do because some Christians can be around alcohol and know how to do it correctly. And some people, because of their history or even their genetic code, when they're around alcohol, they always overindulge. So this is what it's like to follow Jesus. You gotta look at things and go, I want to finish the race of life with you, Jesus. And whatever it takes in the meantime, this is what the Bible talks about. It talks about it as like a race. Paul says, I beat my body and I make it my slave that I might finish the race in Jesus. Now, he's not talking about walking around going, I'm gonna finish the race. He's using, he's going, it's gonna hurt. Discipline hurts, incision hurts. But even if, if I walk to the gates of heaven, bruised and beaten and battered, but I hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, for a billion trillion years, and that would only be just the start of it, I am never gonna regret what I gave up to obtain this. So I'll give you three things. These are the three pieces of best advice from doing years and years, more than a decade in youth ministry. And a lot of youth pastors have me by two decades. You've been doing this for a long time. Getting to hang out with your youth pastors and your counselors has been one of the great joys of this weekend. And having them totally annihilate me in broom hockey has been so great. We got beat. The st- I've been on, I, I have been on the staff team for the last nine years. I've been teaching it for nine years. I've never lost a game of broom hockey before. I lost two games in a row yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> that sucked. Hurt my feelings. You broke your clavicle though. So, sorry. With great decision comes great, you know what I mean? You won, but at what cost? I can still do this, okay? I'm not trying to brag, I'm just saying. You weren't even gonna play. I saw you on the bridge and you were like, I'm not going to, and then you're out there breaking your clavicle and stuff. I felt so bad when I saw that. I'm like, God, my man with his suspenders. All right. Now you've got a sling and suspenders. That's a lot of little ropes hanging off your body. Okay. <laughs> Number one. Number one. Did I say three things? Yes. I'm into. <laughs> Number one is practice true repentance. Okay, write, write that down. Whatever note you're taking, whatever you're doing. Practice true repentance. When you use the word repent in scripture, it's a really important word. It's the first word of Jesus' public ministry. It's the first word of John the Baptist's public ministry. It's the first word of Peter's public ministry. When you have that kind of a pattern going on, you should probably pay attention and lean into what that word means. But for us, our culture, a lot of the time, the word repentance, you might have heard it before. You like a guy on the street corner at the beach is like, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent, repent. That word means that you're going this way with your life, and you need to pull a 180 and go back the other way. Yeah, we talked about, we were in the book of Romans last night. We walked through Romans Road. I would say the last part of Romans Road, uh, which is that series of verses in Romans, is Romans chapter 12, which begins like this. It's now speaking to Christians, because it starts with the word brothers. When you see that in scripture, it's talking about the saved in the church, 
the church body, brothers and sisters, okay? So you don't wanna read a passage that says brothers and sisters and try to hold a non-Christian culpable to what that passage is saying. It's not for them, it's for us as believers. The passage starts out like this. Brothers and sisters, Romans chapter 12, verse one. In view of God's mercy, that means, look, you've been saved. You're in, you're part of the church. Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, What's his mercy? Mercy means he didn't give you what you deserved. You deserved hell, and God withheld that from you by punishing his son instead. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true spiritual worship. And then there's this crazy phrase afterwards that says, if you wanna, if you wanna do that well, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to know, test, and approve what God's will is for your life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Romans 12 says, if you've been saved, here's your next step. Transform your mind. You see, you've been a slave to sin for many years, friend. You've been a slave to the world. You've worshiped your foreign idol for a long time. If you don't think that there's vestiges and something left over from that life, right now, if you gave your life to Jesus last night, you're wrong. You will have tendencies to go back to. You will have old things that you worship that will creep back into your life. You will have old friends groups that ridicule you and want you to go back to who you used to be. You must renew your mind, the scripture says. And how do you do that? Number one, practice true repentance. You need to change the way you think about repentance. Here's what we think repentance means, right? We think it means I do something wrong, okay? Let's say uh, you hang out with your friend's group, you, um, do, you, do like a, you have like a slumber party, right? And then all of a sudden, Alicia always brings up, you guys play a game called What's the Tea, right? And then what happens is you guys start talking about people and you start gossiping and it just becomes hateful after a while, right? And you know that. You know that's where it's gonna go, but then the next weekend it's like, you guys wanna go to Alicia's house, we're gonna have a slumber party. And you go back in, and you go back doing the same thing, and you watch the same movie, and you get in the same circle, and you play the same game called What's the Tea, and then you arrive at the same destination. Repentance doesn't mean that you do that every weekend, and then after every weekend when it's done, you go home and go, hey God, sorry I did that again. It makes me feel really bad. I wish I hadn't done that. Also, I pray for your travel mercies next Saturday as I head back over to Alicia's house. <laughs> That's not repentance. Repentance isn't just feeling bad about the ways that we have grieved the heart of God. It is putting barriers in the way and changing the way we do things in order to make it happen. If you've got a route that you go to school or you've got a route that you go to work or you've got a route that you go to your friend's house and let's say the route is left, right, left, right, left to get to their house. You better believe every time you leave your home, if you go left, right, left, right, left, where are you gonna end up? Your friend's house, the same place, where you went before. How do you go somewhere else? You go right, 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 left, right, right. You're gonna go somewhere else. So next time Alicia invites you over, the great decision requiring great incision means that for some of us, our friends group have to change. And you're going, no, that's big. Following Jesus is big. Imagine entering the gates of eternity and God going, hey, did you know Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? And you're all, I'm sorry, but Alicia's house was so fun. 
Here's what Jesus says. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your tongue causes you to gossip, cut it out. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. What's he doing? He's hyperbolizing what it, means to what it takes to follow him. He really isn't expecting us to walk around like, hello, how are you? I, I'm from the church, right? Like, he's, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is he goes, when you, when you get to heaven, he goes, I promise, when you see me face to face, I'm gonna give you a resurrection glorified body where you're gonna get all your body parts back. But it would be better for you to show up to the gates of heaven looking like that and come in than for your hand, eye, or something else to, to participate in habitual sin that takes you away from me and finish life without me. Repentance means changing something, okay? One of my favorite stories is a man named Hernan Cortez, and he's a conquistador. And it's, the year is about 1519, and he sets sail because he hears of the golden treasure in the Yucatan Peninsula. But for a whole generation, people have been trying to capture the gold of the Yucatan, and you can't because it's so heavily guarded. And people have to wayfare across the sea. By the time they get there, a lot of them are sick or they're malnourished or there's some, you know, it's like Oregon Trail. Everyone died of dysentery. That happens all the time. So Hernan Cortez shows up with his fellow conquistadors and he arrives on the beach and they look at the army in front of them and the army outnumbers them 10 to one. And so the men go, uh, Hernan, we are not fighting them or however, Spanish people speak better than that. It got a little Jamaican there at the end, and I didn't mean for that to happen. Maybe a little bit pirate. Maybe I'll go pirate. Yerg, uh, there, there'd be a lot more of them than there'd be of us. <coughs> I'm gonna stop my throat. <coughs> anyway, so the men are convinced we're gonna go home. So Hernan Cortez is like, we fight tomorrow at dawn, let's go invade. And they're like, bro, no. I'll go back to San Diego accent, dude. No, bro, there's so many of them, okay? No cap, we're gonna die, okay? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's all take a nap, take a quick rest, let's rest our eyes, and then if, if, if you want us to fight, you're really gonna harsh my mellow. So I need you to come back here and just chill. So Hernan now is going, what am I supposed to do? My men are gonna abandon me. So the next morning, everyone wakes up, and they get out of their tents and they're like, oh, it's a beautiful day to sail back home. And they see Hernan Cortez and he's got a cigar and he's got his foot up on a rock like this and he's all, good morning, men. <laughs> they're like, what's that? Like, Did you make breakfast? What's, this, what's that smell? He's all, that's the smell of the ships burning. And all the men are like, what do you mean the ships are burning? You lit our ships on fire? Why would you do that? And he's like, I know where we can get more ships. Uh, where can we get more ships? You see that army? <laughs> On the other side of them, they have big ships. We kill all them, you all go home. We do not, we stay here forever, you still never see a family, your decision. And the men, knowing they had no option but to fight the army and to go this direction, ended up winning the battle. They took their ships and they sailed home and they conquered the Yucatan Peninsula for the Spanish army. Why? Because they burned the ships of their option to return to what they knew they didn't want to do. That is what it is, that's what repentance is. 
is to look at your life and burn the ships of your old way of thinking, your old way of doing things, your old habits, your old addictions, your old pornography addiction. It's to look at your computer and go, I know what keeps me going back to my old sin and you have to fix something. And friend, if you have an addiction to pornography, you can't have a phone in your pocket that has unlimited Wi-Fi and unlimited access to the internet. Pornography addiction, like any other addiction, is a chemical change of your mind. Imagine you having a friend, let's, let's imagine a scenario where your guardian has some kind of a um, addiction to hard drugs, like cocaine. And maybe, you don't, you don't have to imagine this, maybe this has happened in your family or in your household. And your mom goes, okay, I'm gonna go, let's say it's your mom, it's your dad, whatever it is. And they go away to a facility and they're gonna try to get sober, but they do so with cocaine in their pocket the whole time. They don't turn it in, they keep it with them, they use it whenever they want to. Would you take their recovery seriously? I wouldn't, I would take it personally that they weren't. Such it is with a lot of us who struggle with addictions, whether it be chemical addictions, addictions to a person, to a boyfriend, to a girlfriend, to, yeah, again, to pornography, alcohol, whatever it is. You can't just fight it with willpower. It's called, a, it's called an addiction for a reason. It means your brain has chemically made an alteration. And you need to inside something, you need to change something. You can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Do you know what that's called? Insanity. Incision. What does it look like to be different? I had a whole group of guys when I was in high school, when I was uh, overseeing our high school ministry, I had my own small group, and I said, how many of you guys struggle with pornography addiction? Every hand was up. And I said, I, don't keep coming back and talking to me about your pornography addiction unless you're gonna do something to change it. I can't every week just come and go, it's not that big of a deal, it's not that big of a deal, because it is a big deal to God. It means something. And just because a, a lot of people are involved in it doesn't mean that it's okay. It still grieves the heart of God. The next week, I had 12 out of 13 guys show up with flip phones that no longer had internet access. 17-year-old dudes in high school all got flip phones. Guess how many of them struggled with pornography after that? One. Guy number 13 who didn't turn into a smartphone. I don't know what it is for you. All I know is if you want to take this thing seriously, when Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave, he wasn't saying, I'm going to listen to worship music on my way to school rather than some other music. That's not beating your body. It's not, it's not, that's not true discipline. It means great incision most of the time for us. Secondly, practice true repentance. Number two is this. This is the last one for the weekend. Take divorce off the table with your local church. Okay. <clears throat> Again, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. I helped, I was a part of leading the youth ministry even when I was back in Bakersfield at St. John's. Yeah, St. John's, yeah. Party on. Um, so I would, like, I would help lead Bible studies there. I would, I, we would, I would be on the worship team and stuff like that. And, but I was like a critic's critic. And it, I think back on those things. And so I'm, kinda, I'm, I'm coming to you from the future. Do not, do not, do not buy into the idea that because modern churches have Instagrams and invite you to Easter and post billboards on the side of the road and their lead pastor gets on and goes, hey, 
where are you going to church this week? And we'd like you to come over to Valley Bible of Faith. And I want you to just tell you one thing. And I'm not making fun of them at all. At all. What I'm saying is, what happens when you keep hearing a whole bunch of churches asking you to come to their church? What do you feel like? When a whole bunch of people, it seems like they're vying for your attention for you to come and put your butt in their seats, what do you become as an individual? You go, man, I'm a consumer. I'm wanted. And because of our modern digital age, and because <clears throat> that mindset is so pervasive, in a lot of churches, what happens is the individual walks around town and they go, they read the sign, the billboard here, come worship with us. No, come worship with us. We've got a merry-go-round on Easter. We've got a Ferris wheel. And you're sitting there going, all right, who's going to be lucky enough to have me sit in their seat? I don't know. That's a consumeristic mindset. It is absolutely, unequivocally, fundamentally, completely juxtaposed, opposed, and anti what Jesus ever meant when he established this church. For you as an individual to feel like it is your divine favor to give to a church to sit in their very pews. Not the case at all. And it is the most toxic and common heart posture of your generation and mine. What happens when you're a consumer? I worked at the Olive Garden for a few years when I was in college. And when you are a server at the Olive Garden, you get back, you get back in the back, and you sit there, and you walk out, and you go, hi, my name's Christopher. I'm hoping that you have a great hospitaliano experience today. Can I recommend any red wine with your meat today? Could I interest you in blah, 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 blah? Here's our specials, da, da, da. And then people walk in, and they don't realize it. It's a, it's a chain Italian food restaurant. It's not, it's not authentic. Like, the, the chicken parmesan comes in a bag, and we rip it open in the back, and we put it on a, and like we, sorry if you're like <laughs> a stockholder with Olive Garden, but like our breadsticks come on a big thing in the morning, and we like put a little butter on them, and they're, our pasta fajol, which everyone thinks is the healthiest one, 750 calories a bowl, right? It's nuts. And I have people coming like, I'm just gonna eat healthy. I'll just go with the pasta, the soup salad and breadsticks. Oh yeah, what soup? The pasta fajol. I'm like, okay. But they come in, they're like, my soup's hot. This is a completely true story. We serve this drink at the Olive Garden called Bellini Raspberry Peach Iced Tea. And it's literally, there's one vat of it in the back. And it's called, Ellen, it says Bellini Raspberry Peach Iced Tea. But on the menu, you can order raspberry iced tea or peach iced tea. But it's all one drink. And I walked up to this table one time, and this lady was like, I'll take the uh, raspberry iced tea. And I said, you got it. So I go in the back, and I get the raspberry peach iced tea, and I put a peach in it instead of a raspberry. You're supposed to garnish it. I put a peach in it, and I gave it to her. And she goes, and she goes, she takes a drink. She goes, I ordered raspberry iced tea. This is peach. And I went, that's my mistake. I took it in the back. I took out the peach, I put a raspberry in, and I walked back out, and I said, there you go. And she went, that's more like it. <laughs> and I went, okay. But that's what you do. When you're a consumer, you walk in, and you go, well, I'm paying $15 for some chicken. I'll get it my way. I'll do my own thing. I want the, 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 it's a little bit too hot in here. It's a little bit too cold in here. I'm a little too close to that table. That baby won't stop crying. Give me some more breadsticks. Can I have these to go? Those little Andy's mints at the end, just stock them up. (laughs) 
And the attitude in the kitchen is remarkably different than the attitude of the people coming in to consume. And that consumer mentality will kill you as a believer. Here's why it will kill you. Because you will walk into a church and guess what they're gonna do? They're gonna let you down. They're gonna offend you. You all have a youth pastor that one day is gonna bum you the heck out. You're gonna do something and they're not gonna like it. And they're gonna do something and you're not gonna like it. And they're gonna do a new series on the book of James and you wanna do a hot topic series on relationships. And because you're a consumer, here's what you think to yourself. Well, fine, for the next four weeks, I'm gonna go to First Presbyterian. Is that your church? (laughs) We welcome you with open arms. But just like great incision, the way that we grow in this life is we commit to something, we commit to the mess and the hard and the difficult and the problems with another person. That's why great marriages are celebrated. Great marriages are celebrated because two people that go, we probably aren't the most compatible two people that could possibly get married, but we're gonna make this work. And they fight and they bicker and they have problems and they get through it and they learn each other more and they study each other more and they have these really uh, unifying experiences and they go through hard things and they can have kids and those kids can grow up and those kids give them hardship. And at the end of 50 years, this couple looks at each other and goes, I really, really, really love you. Why? Because of the covenant that we made and commitment that we stuck together. Do you know what word picture Paul gives us to understand the church in Ephesians chapter five. Help me out. The bride, marriage. He uses the same word picture. He says, I've covenanted with my church in the same way that a man covenants with his wife in the same way that you ought to covenant with your local church. Now listen, if your youth pastor is teaching heresy, if he's like, God, maybe, I think he's more like, there's not three parts of the Trinity, there's four. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and M&Ms. You know, like, if he's, for sure, get the heck out of that church. But the 99% of all people leave churches because it doesn't fit their preferences or because something changes and they had some sacred thing in their mind of what they always liked. Not because of, her- not because of heresy, not because of doctrinal issues. Friend, if you want to finish this race with, with Jesus, you will commit to a church community, take divorce off the table, and you need to start linking arms with your youth pastor, understanding that biblically speaking, the idea that you are someone that's saved and you come in and critique or you ask your youth pastor, what do you have for me today? You've misunderstood the church. You are a servant. You should walk in every week, link arms with your youth pastor and say, what are we doing tonight, Courtney? What are we doing tonight, Corey? What are we doing tonight, Bill? What are we doing tonight, Tim? Right? What are we doing tonight, Brian? What are we doing tonight, David? What are we doing tonight? Because whatever you, if you say we're all gonna get on stage and we're gonna do the Macarena for 45 minutes, and if you're convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit that that's gonna bring people to saving faith, then I will Macarena the crap out of that stage. Because I'm here for the lost. I'm here for those who don't know you. I'm not here to get my feet rubbed and for experience that I get to have. And if the worship in your youth group sucks, deal with it, okay? Because it's not about it sounding good. It's about a posture of your heart. And if you really hate it, learn guitar. You do something about it, but you can't just consume the church. It will toxify your whole soul if you look at the church of Jesus 
as some kind of an In-N-Out or some kind of Dairy Queen or some kind of Albertsons that when they run out of your favorite thing or they let you down or they overcharge you one time or some, they make some mistake on your order that you punish them by leaving for the next six months. You will not finish the race with Jesus if you do not love his bride like he did. You're not gonna do it perfectly. You're not gonna do it perfectly. But you must stop doing it critically. Some of you need to, after this, you need to apologize to your youth pastor for your constant criticisms. You need to make amends with your small group leader who is bivocational and has taken their own holiday schedule to come and be with you up here and all you've done is give them trouble and ridicule them because the conversation just isn't very fruitful right now. I'm not learning a lot. Can you read? Then read this. Let me, let, let me just challenge you with one more thing as I'm leaving. The role of youth pastor came into existence when fathers stopped doing their role of teaching their kids the Bible. The role of a youth pastor was born to supplement mothers, especially whose husbands were out at war, to come in and help teach scripture and help to nourish young men and women who were without a father figure because the original role in the church was that fathers taught their families the scriptures. When they neglected to do so, the role of youth pastor was born in order to fill in for that absence. It's not a biblical role. They didn't have him in Jesus' day. And I wanna ask you a question, what if it went away again? What if, which a lot of churches may be going this direction, especially with the way that everything's shifting, particularly in California, if they lose funding and every church gets rid of their youth pastor first, who are you gonna blame your lack of spiritual growth on then? It was, it was, but the impotence in scripture is always on you. It's never on them. So if you go, well, I'm gonna go to a different church because I'm not really growing spiritually here. You're, all you're doing is admitting that you have no personal devotional life and that responsibility you've placed for your soul and your spiritual growth, you have, for whatever reason, misplanted it on your youth pastor. That should embarrass you to say that phrase. Because it's, it's your responsibility for yourself. And if you will, in, in courage and bravery, link arms with the people who lead your ministry, your small group leaders, your youth pastors, and you say, we're gonna wreck this world for the kingdom of God, come hell or high water, we will see a generational revival take place. I have no doubt whatsoever. My man. But until we get there, we have to kill the consumerism inside of us. Practice true repentance. Take divorce off the table with your local church. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness in these ways that I fall short in the attitude I still have in being critical of the place that I work and the people that I've worked with for any time that I've had a, a bad understanding of something or I just thought something should be done differently and instead of loving your church, I just I slinged mud at her and I apologized. And God, for the areas of my life where I didn't practice true repentance, instead I just acted like feeling bad was sufficient. I didn't incise anything, I didn't shift anything or alter anything. I just took your cheap grace and walked away. Would you give me the courage to spur me to become better in those things? Would your Holy Spirit show me the areas of my life where I need deeper incision and would I have the courage and bravery with the church community around me to get rid of those things that are keeping me from you? Let me pray, amen.